All of Shakespeare's plays are written in five acts. What's your favorite Shakespeare play? Is it a history, a tragedy, a, one of the comedies? I prefer the comedies. Every one of them is written in five acts. Eminent biblical scholar Tom Wright compares the grand drama of God's creation work to unite all things in heaven and earth to a five-act Shakespearean play. There's the exposition, the rising action, the climax, the falling action, and the denouement. And the script of our first four acts is the story of Scripture. God said, let there be, and there was, begins the first act. Planets and solar systems, mountains and oceans, plants and mosses and fungi, winged and finned animals, creepy, crawly beasties, and land-walking creatures in all their variety, including we humans. As an expression of God's character that teems with love and beauty and abundance, the creation of heavens and the earth is ordered and abundantly good. And Act 1 closes with the introduction of the play's conflict, the human creature attempting to, to claim as our own that which was meant to be gifted us in God's own good timing. And with this, we are moved into Act 2, the, the rising action. Now, Act 2 is a long and storied and depiction of God's continued relational work in creation with, with the selection of a family, Abraham and Sarah and their descendants, Israel. God's life-giving work was, was to be fulfilled, not only for their family, but for the entire world, for all the families of the earth. Act 2 is filled with gripping character development and relational drama and displays of God's generous love in, in various and sundry ways, powerful acts of deliverance and rescue, miraculous scenes of provision and protection, the gift of the law, Emotional pathos like that between parent and child as, as God and Israel hammer out their relationship through, through times of faithfulness and mistrust, discipline and forgiveness. And as Israel seeks to better understand what their having been chosen by God actually means for them and for their place in and relation with the rest of the world. We reach Act 3, the climactic act of the sweeping drama, and centered is Act 3 around and in the person of Jesus. Act 3 reveals the incarnation of God's very self, the creating God taking on human flesh, and in line with having chosen Israel, Jewish flesh and blood, in order to complete that what had been promised to and through them, the fulfillment of God's life-giving creative work to, to unite all things in heaven and earth 
Act 3 is God's creative work climaxing in the person of Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the Son of God. Through this chosen one, Jesus, the intent of the drama is ultimately revealed. We arrive at at where Acts 1 and 2 were taking us in the life, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, who is now seated with all authority, we see God's intent for creation come to fruition, heaven and earth united, ordered aright, and flourishing in relational harmony through him. Jesus has given his rightful place as Messiah of both Jew and Gentile, as ruler of all space and all time, past, present, and future, nothing, no one, no place excluded. And then Act 4, the falling action, God's spirit is set loose through this now ruling one, Jesus, to to fill the world with his relational presence and life-giving power and to gift people for participation in the work of God now completed in Jesus through whom God's creative intent is manifest, all things united in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Act 4 portrays a spirit-filled people, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female of all nations, of all peoples, learning to live out this new reality together, ordered aright in relational harmony, tending well to and sharing with one another the good gifts of creation. There are bumps, of course, as they seek to live it out, but they have the script before them. They know how the story has developed, And through the scriptures, they they know the character of God revealed fully in the person of Jesus. They know the trajectory of the story, God's intent in creating, that this good creation lives and flourishes with just mercy and abundance for all. And they engage under the power of God's Spirit to follow His way that opens up gracefully into that storied end. One, two, three, four. And Act five, the denouement. Well, this is the act that has been lived out where the scriptures end. All we who have come after are are called up on the stage to to improvise as actors in this grand and glorious drama. But our improv is not a free-for-all, a creative work of our own liking. We are to stay in character. We are to be studied actors, steeped in the script as passed down in scriptures, the first four acts of the drama. To follow Jesus, then, is to grow in our desire to to see God's creative intent for creation and to see that vision lived out in our life together. 
to practice the way of Jesus, filling all creation with, with righteousness and goodness, with mercy and justice and peace and plenty for all. We have been gifted with God's Spirit to guide and discipline us as we long to discern rightly our course in the world until that day when all loose ends are tied up and God is finally all in all, that day in God's own timing when every nook and cranny of the kingdom of the world is become the kingdom of our God. I love the idea of us being improv actors, well-studied and desiring to live true to character, the character of the one we follow, the lead in the drama, Jesus. And this rather lengthy comparison of God's creation work to a play, and our script being the scriptures, well, that helps us land safely where we need to be in order to understand our gospel text today such a simple text, right? I mean, it has what many hold to be the most beloved words in all of Scripture, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And it's tempting to just raise the placard, end it right there, and move on to a joyful hymn of adoration. But friends, that would, that would dismiss what John is telling us in his good news story. We need to know the script so we might do our improv well, might be faithful to character. John writes his gospel as a spirited cast player in Act 4. He is well-versed in the divine human drama that has been taking place from the very beginning. He's studied the preceding acts, one, two, and three, and he knows the main characters, God and Abram, Moses, Israel, Elijah, and the rest of the prophets, including John the baptizer. And he knows Jesus. And what he is portraying in this encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus is, is the transition taking place from Act 2 into Act 3. The rising action of Act 2, that relationship between God and Israel, has, has reached its crescendo in the coming of this one Jesus, the one who was in the beginning, writes John. The one whom, through whom all things came into being. The true light shining in the darkness. The one who came unto his own. The one who would baptize people with Holy Spirit power to become children of God. These are all ways John describes Jesus in the, in the first chapter of his gospel story. All this to set us up for the climactic third act of the grand drama of creation. And John begins that transition with a sign. The very first sign John will relate to mark that transition from Act 2 to Act 3. He tells it in chapter 2, briefly. 
Jesus is attending a wedding. The wine runs out, which is a shame, a shame. And Jesus commands that that six stone jars used for Jewish rites of purification, used to make what is unclean, clean. He commands that they be filled with water, an abundance of water, which he then turns into wine, the best wine. Upon his arrival, the need for such purification rituals was at its end. He was the initiator of the long-awaited day of fulfillment, the joyful merrymaking and overflowing abundance as, as God's intended goal was at hand, God's creation work nearing its consummation. Later in chapter 2, he travels to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Entering the temple, he, he sees the crowded space, a, a bustle with the usual temple sacrificial practices, money exchanging and stock market trading, literally, as in livestock trading. He makes a whip of cords. He drives out all the animals. He pours out the money, and he overturns the table. And of course, the good Jewish religious leaders demand answers. And Jesus gives them this. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, nobody understands the mysterious saying until after his resurrection, when it became clear to his followers that, oh, he was speaking of the temple of his body. Aha! His death and resurrection put an end to the need for the temple sacrifice system. In his self-sacrifice, the promised day when the worship of God would not be bound to a cultic ritual, but all people would worship God in spirit and in truth wherever they lived, that day was drawing near. Through his own body, crucified and raised up, born anew, that day would arrive. And in Jerusalem, while many had questions for and about him, John writes, because they saw the signs he was doing, many other people believed in his name, believed in Jesus. And John pushes the carriage return lever on his typewriter. The paper transfers to the next line, and he begins to type out chapter 3. Now, there was a man, a Pharisee, named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. Nicodemus is one of those who has questions for and about Jesus He's curious about this fellow, curious about what he's doing, curious about what he's saying, curious about his relationship with God. Now, Nicodemus is steeped in the script of the creation story. He knows the players, God, Abraham, Moses, Israel, Elijah, and all the rest of the prophets, including John the baptizer. And he has seen Jesus in action. His interest is piqued. He wants to know more. 
about Jesus. So he sets up a rendezvous under the cover of night, maybe nothing more than John staging the scene to indicate the confusion Jesus has evoked in many people. And Nicodemus tells Jesus what he and they are thinking, what they know and understand and are confused about. He relates their ire, their wonderings, their concern over, over Jesus' unorthodox manners. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with that person. And Jesus responds, as you heard, very truly I tell you, or in the king's English, if you like, verily, verily, or how I might translate it, you are right, and Here's something even more. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above or anew or again. And Nicodemus says, come again? A person, after being born, can, cannot re-enter the womb to be born a second time. And Jesus says, you are right, and here's something even more. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. And Nicodemus responds, huh? And this is about the time that you and I, well, we begin to smirk at what we take to be such a quaint, maybe even foolish response. We are amused by the confusion Nicodemus has. I mean, doesn't this guy know the script? And this is the danger we face by the temptation of confusion or unbelief to, to dismiss those who don't yet understand. To write them off as clucks or infidels or worse as eternally lost and damned to hell. And this temptation, Jesus faced as well. But even when Jesus expresses astonishment that Nicodemus, a learned teacher of Israel, doesn't understand what Jesus is putting down, it is not to dismiss him as an imposter or a dunderhead or damned to hell, it is to put a strong accent on the point that what has taken place in the first and second acts of this drama between heaven and earth has been God's creative work to lead Israel to this very moment, to, to this very one, this, this very person, this, this descendant of Abraham, son of God, to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of, of what God began in the very beginning. The fulfillment of the creation drama meant to unite all things in heaven and earth to make the entirety of creation the habitation of the Creator. To make all people beloved partners in God's life-giving work. 
Jesus doesn't dismiss Nicodemus, but he goes on. Maybe something like this. You've got good understanding as to the way God has established the world to work. You're right, you cannot re-enter your mother's womb. You've got the mechanics down pat. You know your script. God has chosen Israel and has given the law and all these religious practices, but, but not so that by following to a T, we humans might reach out and shape heaven and earth in our own fashion as if we could take hold of eternal life by our own strength and will. Why, that's what we've been trying to do from the beginning, laying claim to life on our own terms rather than recognize it as pure gift. We strive to wrestle and peck and paw our way into God's grace-filled realm rather than recognize his voice calling us to receive abundant life by God. God's faithful hand. You know the script, Nicodemus. And so you know God's character, mighty deliverer, strong savior, generous provider, jealous protector. You know the emotional roller coaster we've ridden over the centuries with God as, as that of parent and child, but, but God has always, always, even in times of discipline, self-revealed as faithful, good, trustworthy, forgiving. All this because, because God so loves the world. All people of the world. The law, the cultic practices, they are but a sign of God's desire that heaven and earth lock in a holy embrace. But this embrace is beyond the reach of any human, even one who might perfect the law and its ritual practices. Act 2, Nicodemus, is but setting the stage for Act 3, for through the centuries, even with the law and the practices, this, this holy embrace has not been reached and the longing has only grown more bitter. And God has heard our cry of affliction. But this embrace comes only as a gift. The gift of God who so loves all that God has created. And just as God's spirit moved over the chaotic waters in the beginning, so, so God is taking another deep breath in preparation to, to blow that same life-giving spirit over all creation in order to empower all people for participation in God's life-giving work together, but not under their own power, rather under the power of God's spirit. It is all gift, Nicodemus. Creation, having been chosen, struggling to understand, curious questioning, all of it, gift. God's enlivening breath, gift. Me, says Jesus, in me, 
Act 2 comes to a close, and the gift of God's Spirit arrives to unite heaven and earth. So Nicodemus, look to me, believe on me, and experience God's gift of new birth. Be filled with my life, and you will see, you will enter, you will participate in that holy embrace. Friends, we need, we have to understand, Nicodemus is living in act two of this five-act creation play. He's an outstanding actor, understanding and playing his role extremely well as a, a faithful child of Israel, trying to work out the relationship with God and seeking to better understand what their having been chosen by God actually means for them and for their place in and relation with the rest of the world. And in this setting of this grand drama, Nicodemus is no slouch, he's no simpleton. And Jesus does not dismiss him as such. In fact, through John's Gospel, Nicodemus appears a couple other times in ways that reveal a change in his understanding of who Jesus is. In fact, near the end of John's gospel story, there with Joseph of Arimathea, who out of fear was a secret disciple of Jesus, there with Joseph is none other than Nicodemus. And together they tenderly prepare the crucified body of Jesus for burial. And they place it in the garden tomb. No doubt, together remembering his words of needing to be born from above. Maybe even daring to wonder whether that gift he talked about, God's rebirthing spirit, would not only fill Jesus with life anew, but fill their sails as well so they may journey faithfully in his resurrection life. So in our ongoing improv work, we need to study the script, get to know the characters, so we might act our parts faithful to character, faithful to Jesus, the one we claim to follow. And in so doing, we will find that we cannot write off people who don't yet understand or who for the moment cannot or refuse to believe the life gift that comes through Jesus, to believe that that gift is meant for them as well. And after studying and knowing and growing in our love for Jesus, we must follow his lead and continue to share the news of God's love for all the world in ways that continue to affirm all people through our words and our actions, even in their confusion and disbelief as the very ones God so loves. Amen.
Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.